If you take your Bible, open up to Psalm 8. 8 is great. It begins and ends with these words. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm is a mountaintop experience. Pastor Jones and I on Friday took the old Deer Park Road, hit the washboard effect there in the vehicle, sort of edged toward the side of the cliff, proceeded on, got to the top of the mountain, and it was glorious up there. Amen, Mike? Amen. Mike and I also were at a really neat place uh, in Jerusalem. It's called the Mount of Olives. Christ is Lord. You know why? Because on that mountain, he lifted into the heavens. Christ is Lord today. So, if you start with me here on Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens? From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. Because of your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the seas, now here we are again. It begins and ends with, O Lord, our our God. Okay, ready? O Lord, O our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, bless the reading of the word for your glory right here at IBC. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Dr. Swenson. We continue on with our journey through the attributes of God, talking about the greatness of of our God. A teacher once had his students um, draw a picture of whatever they desired just to show some of their artistic ability and then they were to stand up and share what they had drawn. This one child stood up and they asked, well, what is that? And he said, well, that's a picture of God. And he says, well, no one knows what God looks like. He says, well, now they do. I'm hoping at the end of our journey, we will be able to say, we know what God looks like. We've looked at some of the different aspects of God. Last week, um, Steve shared with us the self-existence of God. The way I've been impacted with this study is uh, I am in awe of who our God is, but I find myself also being captured by fear. This God is so amazing. 
And uh, who am I to be able to even stand up here and share anything about God, to act as if I know some deep insight into him? I'm like you. I'm a disciple, sitting, learning, hoping to know him better. But I do know that the study has resulted in what Pastor Aaron had originally talked about when we started this journey, and that is that uh, we begin to praise him and to worship him and to celebrate his greatness, how great really is our God. Today we look at the thought of transcendence. And I must say that I'm not going to stick only with transcendence, but I'm going to talk about his eminence as well. Uh, Because I think we have seen with each one of these um, attributes of God, uh, characteristics that display who he is, that it directly associates with us in terms of our relationship with him. So I want us to be able to see that today. But we look at his transcendence. We're going to lose, just so you know exactly where we're going to go this morning, I'm going to try to define transcendence and imminency as well. After that, I'm going to turn to the psalm that uh, Vern read for us, and that is to then address how he manifests his transcendence and how he um, and what he chooses to use to display that, then we're going to see how he invites us to be a part of all that he's doing, manifesting his eminence, that he's closeness and so forth. And then we're going to look at the first and the last of that psalm to see exactly what it should result in, and you've already seen that, that is to worship God. So that's exactly where we're going this morning. You can follow along as we do so. So what do we mean by the word to transcend or transcendency? We actually use that word in our normal vocabulary. We talk about people that have excelled in something, that are amazing in what they've accomplished, that they've gone head and shoulders above others, whether that be in sports, whether that be in academics, whether that be in research, whether that be in uh, cooking, or whether that be in raising children, whatever that might be, we've seen that some have gone above what we call the normal standard or uh, what we've come to accept. But it's to transcend that. Some of the synonyms that we would use for transcendency would be to exceed or to excel or to outdo or outstrip or surpass. These words simply mean to go beyond the implied limits or degree, and to transcend means to rise above that, notably above that, beyond what is normal in that. Now, we can use those terms, humanly speaking, to talk about transcending and its progress, but we can't use that with God because God is not evolving at all. He already is. So He, when we speak of transcendency, is above and beyond. We'll talk a little more about that. He is higher. He is greater. He's more than humanity can know. Humanity, as I've already implied, has limitations or boundaries. God transcends the boundaries of human limitations. He has no limitation. In religion, transcendency is the aspect of, of uh, existence that is completely independent of the material universe beyond all known physical laws. 
That's why in Psalm 113 we read that God sits above the nations in authority. He sits above the heavens in its creation. He is, and we can use these terms interchangeably in terms of that, He is is omnipresent, He is supreme, He is sovereign, uh, He is transcendent in that way. And that is His transcendency. It is a supreme ultimate reality. It is known the question of transcendency answers is only found in God. The fullness of that, the reality of that, the ultimacy of that is actually found only in God in all of that. Now, in contrast to that, this otherness, if we want to call it that, that is beyond anything. Uh, Do you find that hard to grasp, that there is something beyond what we know here? Everything that we do and experience is limited by the physical existence that we have. When we speak of that which is beyond, it's really hard to grasp. And yet God chooses to make himself known in a more intimate way, in his eminence, making himself known. Um, So when we speak of his, um, his transcendence, which is other than all, all creation... We have the delight of also speaking of his eminence, which is his closeness, that is his nearness, that he can be with us. It's, um, so from his omnipresence, in that omnipresence, he makes himself, he reveals himself to us. Now, the, the greatest example of that, of course, would have to be the birth of Christ, Christ. Uh, God himself became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten Son. So when we think of transcendency or transcendent God who cannot be approached in the sense or seen in essence or being, uh, this speaks of that transcendency. When we speak of the imminency of God, we're speaking of the awareness of the compassion of the one, even Christ, our suffering Savior, who makes himself known to us in healing, in rescuing us, in redeeming us in that process. I like the thoughts that God is that big and that he is that powerful, that he manifests himself in such a way. But I would be totally frightened of that, completely filled with fear, if it were not for the fact that he has made himself available to us, that he has desired to have a relationship with us in the Lord Jesus. It almost seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? That this kind of God would want to have anything to do with us. And I think that's really what the psalmist is talking about here. So I'd just like for us to turn to the eighth chapter of Psalms, and we'll look at these two thoughts as it is captured here, trying to capture the bigness of our God at the same time to capture the intimacy of God in his relationship with us. We'll come back to it at the very end, that is verse 1 and verse 9. But in those words about, O Lord, our Lord, the very thought of the transcendence of God and the intimacy of God are defined. But we'll look at that in a moment. 
So when I ask the question, how does God demonstrate his transcendence? How does he just demonstrate that he is above all in his power, in his authority, in his sovereignty, in his rule? How does he display that? He answers that to us in the latter part of verse 1, who uh, have displayed your splendor above the heavens. So he says that this great God is one who chooses to be above the heavens. And the heavens is really kind of what we know. And he, and he uses two illustrations here. Two illustrations to define how great he is, how big he is, even how transcendent he is in that process. He uses a child and he uses creation, the heavens and the earth. That's amazing. If um, I was going to tell you how great I am, I would not use necessarily. A, an infant, a nursing infant. Why would God choose? I mean, just think about that. He's, he's talking about displaying his splendor in the heavens, and I'm going to come to that in a moment. But then he uses in verse 2 this illustration, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. You silence your adversaries. You make your enemy, you know, those to, to cease around you. I use a child. You know, I would not necessarily decide if I'm going to tell you about how great and powerful and amazing I am. I would not say, well, I'm just look at a child, and that's how you can understand who I am. Well, that wouldn't necessarily be what I would say, you know. I mean, our heroes are able to do great things, you know, uh, jumping over buildings, climbing up walls. But God says, I'm as powerful and as mighty and as glorious as a baby. Hmm. Well, it's kind of interesting when you study a child, and it's really a, it's a, it doesn't just say a child, but he says a n- nursing baby. Now, now I think there's a, a lot of significance in that. A baby uh, really doesn't know a lot, has a lot of potential, but doesn't know much. But there is an amazing process that goes on as that baby nurses and taking in milk, there is an incredible miracle that takes place in that process. That miracle that takes place in there and that nourishment that is given to that child, that body that is created by God transfers all of that milk into muscles, blood cells. That's a miracle. I mean, that is a miracle that is going on. Your, your body is a miracle, but I want to look at that in just a moment. But I want to talk about, first of all, just how the biological process of a birth is amazing. And I'm quoting here, it says, at nine months after conception, the baby's brain sends a hormone through the placenta into the mother's pituitary gland. Now, you got all of this. I mean, this is what you think. We don't ever think of that when we talk about a baby being born. Um, I, I tell you one thing, though. Having witnessed that three times with Jan, I know that if it were left up to men, we'd have one baby. <laughs> that's it. We don't care what's being said at the pituitary gland. We don't care what's going on. That's it. We're not having any more. And it says, and even though this message that is sent is a complicated Uh, complicated in the sense of chemical terms, its message is simple. I'm ready. 
I'm ready, that baby is saying. I'm ready, and I'm ready. It's time. All of the baby's complex systems, the lungs, the heart, the gastro system, the nervous system, the brain, are ready to make its entrance into the world. In nine months, the transformation that goes on, it is a miracle. Multiplication upon multiplication of those cells that produce this child. The baby's skull has not yet fused so that it can be pliable enough to fit through the birth canal. As it uh, progressed, as uh, the progress starts, the baby's adrenal glands add a, a, a kind of a, a kind of a sort of a stress hormones to keep the body help the body cope to go through this process. The baby will not breathe until he has cleared the birth canal. canal. If it uh, it breathes too soon, it will suffocate. If it uh, waited too long, it would suffer brain damage. Just before the mother and child separate, the baby gets a last-minute blood fusion through the umbilical cord. The placenta has now stored the nutrients that the baby needs for that exact moment. There's far more going on than what we don't understand in that process. But God is saying, just consider a baby and what takes place there. So when I think of that, of all that has transpired there, it is incredible miracle. Let's just talk for a moment here then about what took place in that nine months and what is going on in your body even right now. You know, uh, I just think of my whole digestive systems. One of the great miracles in my body is that what I feed my body, it has the ability to make something good out of that. You ever think what you put in your mouth? I think sometimes when my stomach looks at what's coming, it says, are you kidding me? You want me to do what with that? You want me to make blood cells out of this? You want me to make make muscle out of this? You want me to, it's not going to happen. But it really does. Think think of this about the human brain has 10 billion nerve cells. All of those are not functional. I know that. (laughs) Has 10 billion nerve cells interacting in coordination to allow the function, to allow us to function as we do. Your eyes have 100 million receptor cells in each retina, which also contains four other layers of nerve cells. The system makes billions of calculations per second, traveling through your optic nerve to the brain, which has more than a dozen separate vision centers to process it. Now, see, all you think you're doing is just looking. Your body is amazing. I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing what is going on. Your skin has more than 2 million tiny sweat glands, about 3,000 per square inch to regulate your temperature. Your heart beats at an average of 70 times a minute, 40 million times a year, or two and a half billion times in 70 years. It pumps pumps about 3,000 gallons of blood per day. Your body is supported by more than 200 finely designed bones connected to more than 500 muscles and many tendons and ligaments. Your digestive system contains about 35 million glands that secrete juices to digest digest your food and sustain your life. 
I haven't even talked about lungs. I haven't talked about your senses, your smell, your touch, and all of that, and your immune system, and so forth. So what is, what is God saying here? He's saying, I want to I tell you about my greatness, and I'm going to display my greatness by having you look at a nursing child, because that nursing child is a miracle, is an amazing demonstration of my supreme creative power. You are, I am a walking miracle. You know that? I am a walking miracle of God that functions every day without often a sense of gratitude in terms of what God has done. And so he says, you know, we could go on and look at other parts, but you're a miracle. But more than that, you're a miracle that displays the transcendence of God, the supremacy of God. But then he takes a second illustration here, and he says, in terms of his greatness, in terms of his transcendence, he talks about it in verse, latter part of verse 1, you have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And then in verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, and then he asks the question. So now he's, he's, and I love the way he did this. If you'll remember in Isaiah when he talked about the last time, about the, again, about the supremacy of God, that he holds the waters of the world in his hand and he tosses them about and as if he's playing with all of those millions and billions of gallons of water. And we interrupt him and say, can, God, I don't know if you can handle this, but I'd like to talk to you about something. He's fully capable. And so when I think about that, he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. Do, do you remember when you were in uh, grade school and you, um, you got to do finger painting? Uh, Mom would let you do that at home sometimes, realizing it was going to make a mess, but you did finger painting, and you would do that stuff. You'd move that all around, and then you'd, and mom would often put that, even if we brought it home from school or made it at home, she would put it on the refrigerator saying, my kid did that. My kid did that. Now, what it is, you have no idea, nor does the creator have any idea what it is. But as simple as that process is, and I know it teaches some sense of recognition of colors and dexterity and so forth. But when God says, I want to tell you how simple creation is to me. It's like your finger painting. It's like you just emotion. He said, I, I just, it's, it's effortless. It's effortless for me to create. And I said, well, God, what in that effortlessness, what did you create? And you use this illustration David tells of the splendidness of God by defining this creation. The sheer vastness of our space and the coordination of all of that is astounding. If you could travel at the speed of light, 186 million miles per second, It'd take you eight minutes to get to the sun, which is 93 million 
miles away. I've been thinking about that ever since I, I didn't share that with you the last time, but I've been thinking about that a lot. When I sit out there on my deck and I enjoy the warmth of that sunshine, that ray of sunshine started eight minutes ago from the sun and reached me. I can feel the warmth of that. That's amazing. I didn't have that. I can feel the warmth of that sun. To go to the sun, uh, to go from the sun to the center of the Milky Way will take you about 33,000 years. And the Milky Way belongs to a group that of some 20 galaxies known as the local group. And across that group, you'd have to travel for 2 million years at that rate. And the local group belongs to a Virgo cluster and a part of the even larger local supercluster, which is a half a billion light years across. To cross the entire universe as we know it would take you 20 billion light years. If you have a telescope, you could see some of that, but not much. With the naked eye, we can see about 5,000 stars. With a 4-inch telescope, you can see about 2 million stars. With a 200-inch mirror of a great observatory, you can see more than a billion stars. The universe is so big that if one were to travel at the speed of light, it would take as I've already said, those billions of years to move to the edge of the universe, whatever that is. And we talk about galaxies upon galaxies. And he says, oh, you're impressed with all of that? That's my needlepoint work. That's, that's, that's my finger painting. You know, that's my rhythm. That's nothing. That's nothing for me. Now, I don't think that he's doing that to say that to us to show off. I think he's doing that to bring us to a position of understanding of his greatness so that we would say, oh, what God? What God is great like our God? He does something else for us here in this process, and that is all of this is just to define his other than us, not like us. But then he comes back and he says, I want to show you the eminency of God, the availability of God, the nearness of God, the provision of God so that we can have a relationship with him and interact with him. Now, first of all, I just want you to understand, do you understand what an amazing blessing it is For God to say to us, I want you to participate in what I'm doing. You can be partners with me. Can you imagine that? When I was here at the church and one of my seminary professors was Dr. Kerr. And um, Dr. Kerr was really influential in me getting my, my doctorates and other things along that line. And He was the one that got me involved with, as a mentor, involved with going to other countries and teaching pastors in other countries. He said to me, 
would you come alongside and partner with me in doing what I'm doing? Dr. Kerr uh, has forgotten more than I'll ever know. Uh, Dr. Kerr had several earned doctorates. I remember when I would travel with him on the airplane and he would mention someone's name. He said, you know him, don't you? And I said, no, but I've read his book. (laughs) But he knew all those people. He was instrumental in uh, starting Denver Seminary uh, and others um, in a whole denomination in terms of multiplying that out. Dr. Kerr was, uh, was an amazing man that taught me a lot of things, and he allowed me to partner with him. When I went to Korea with him the first time, everywhere I went, they knew of Dr. Kerr. They knew of him. They didn't know anything about me, but they knew about Dr. Kerr. Isn't that amazing? Now, the interesting thing about Dr. Kerr is he was invited to partner with someone else. And that other person that he partnered with, that he became his friend, the invitation was given to him, was Dr. Louis Talbot. Dr. Talbot may not mean anything to you, but he was twice president of Biola, and he is the name uh, Talbot Seminary is named after him. He was involved with a lot of uh, documentaries that were produced, a number of books that were produced. He was just well-known. And uh, he, he said to Dr. Kerr one day, when they were at this conference, and Dr. Kerr, again, was a nobody, but Louis Talbot was somebody that was known, recognized. And, and he simply said, Bill, let's go swimming. What? Let's go swimming together. And that was that, I mean, like, you don't think people that are that smart have any fun, you know? <laughs> but it was an invitation to say, come and be part of life with me. Dr. Kerr never got over that. He was in, Louis Talbot was in his home many, many times. They became friends. Now, we can mention other people, and perhaps even in this room, you've been blessed to know and experience a number of famous people that that you've had the privilege of getting to know. You know, God has blessed me with that. I can tell you that over in Seattle, I was invited to sit with uh, Chuck Swindoll and have breakfast with him. That's crazy. I mean, this guy is... But let me tell you something. You can name me any name you want to name. You can go to any period of history that you wish... And you can tell me of any significant person you know or know about and say that they've invited you to do something with them would not be near as impressive as the fact that God Almighty comes to every one of you and says, I want you to partner with me. I want you to do this with me. That is his intimacy with us. That's his, where he makes himself known to us. You say, well, Mike, where, where do you get all of that? Well, it was a late night after pizza. No, actually, it's found here in the text. It's found here in the text. He asked the question, and, and now listen, it, it, 
we've just talked about, and we perhaps in greater detail than maybe David knew when he was writing this, but God used the illustration of a child, a baby, the miracle of all of that. He used the illustration of the heavens and how it's just a simple work for him. And then this psalmist, David, is capturing in verse 4 what that meant. What is man that you would take thought of him? God, why would you ever pay any attention to me? Who am I? I am a nobody. And the son of man that you would care for him. Now, there's a number of things that he says here in this psalmist that he does. Take, take thought of him, verse 4, the latter part. You care for him, verse 5. You make him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet. What he's doing here then, he's describing, I'm inviting you to participate with me in all that I'm doing. And that is the thing that has been misunderstood by mankind for a long time, that God really wants to do things with us for his glory. He invites us to do that, things that are beyond us, but not him. He's the senior partner. He's the one with the power. He's the one with the resources. But we get to partner with him. Now, let me just show you at least one place. If you turn with me to Genesis, the very beginning. I'm going to show you what God intended for us and what he still desires for us. If I go to chapter 1 of Genesis and I read, verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, and the image of man he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He talks about what he'd given them to be successful in plants and so forth. This is God's invitation to unfallen man in his perfect state at that point, unsinned, untainted by any wrong or evil. And he said, we're going to work together on this. I want you to work. Or if I move over just a little further in chapter 2, then I see that um, God, you know, had created and uh, the tree of knowledge was there. Don't take of that. And then he says in verse 18, then the Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground of the earth, God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Can you imagine that? God would just make something. Boom. What do you think of that? Well, let's call that a monkey. A monkey it is. You know, what do you think of that? Well, let's call that an eagle. Eagle it is. And they had this fun together. Can you imagine that? Just fun. But it is kind of interesting what he notes here, and this is a side point that has nothing to do with my message. But it says, 
The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. Can you imagine? He said, brought that critter. He said, wow, that's kind of interesting. I want to call that a baboon, but that could never be my friend, couldn't be my mate. No. Well, let's bring something up. No, that could, I think it intensified his loneliness, which made him even more desirous and makes him cleave, because that's what it says later on, cleave to his wife when he fashioned a woman that was suitable for him. It is interesting that the man said, and then God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought it to the man. And then the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Still going on, isn't it? God says, hey, what do you think of this? Hey, now you've done it, God. You finally did it. This is the one for me. She shall be called woman. What we see here then is this um, invitation to work with God. To be part of all that he's, all that he's doing. We're special to God. We're loved by God. We're important to God. God wants to have a relationship with us. It's interesting to note in Psalm 8 that it is quoted two places in the uh, New Testament. One I'll just make reference to, and that's in Hebrews chapter 2. And there it's talking about the redemptive work of God, and it quotes this verse. So this is often the case of Scripture. It can have an immediate context, and then we can take that same, some of that context and put it in another to, to elevate it even to something more significant. And it's talking about then that this is who God is in His identification with us, and He brings us salvation. He brings us redemption. So now what I realize is, is that with Adam and Eve, the ability to work with God was lost because of sin. But God never gave up on his original plan, and that is to work with mankind in this cooperative effort to do this, all of this that God desires to do. He still wants to do that. And so what he has to do, he has to redeem mankind. He has to draw him back into his relationship with him, and he does so through Jesus Christ. And then the amazing thing about that is as he trained up his disciples, that is Jesus, as he trained up his disciples, he said, go out and conquer the world. Represent me. Share my plan. You can be part of all of this with me. It is the most amazing thing to me that God still in his participation with us, in his intimacy with us, takes the most precious truth that any man could ever imagine. And he says, I'm going to make you the vessel that contains this. And through you, I will make myself known to the world. You become that vessel. Christ in you, the hope, the hope. It is Christ in you that is the hope of the world. All right. We've covered now the definition of transcendency. (laughs) We've seen how he has displayed his transcendency and his eminency, his transcendency through the illustration of a child and all of creation that we see and discover constantly. And we've also seen his eminence where he wants to, eminency where he wants to participate with us. He said that in verse 1, and he said it in verse 9. 
Look at these again as we close. This also tells us why he does all of this. Begins and ends with this. He does so that we would recognize his greatness and worship him. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. All right. That word, there's two different words that are used there for Lord. Our Lord, O Lord, our Lord. The first one talks about his covenant relationship with us, the, the promises that he gives to us, the desire that he has to have a relationship. And the next one, the first one, Jehovah, the next one, Adonai, talks about his power. What is he telling me here? He said, I want to have a relationship with you, and I have the power and the ability to accomplish that. I celebrate him in that process. Oh, how majestic, how splendid, how amazing is your name. That is that by which you have authority, that by which all that you do in all the earth. We worship you, Lord. And then I come down here to verse 9, and it says, Oh, Lord, our Lord, oh, Jehovah God, who wants to have a relationship with me. By the way, that was the name when Moses said, well, when he wanted to go down and set the Israelites free from the Egyptians, he said, well, who shall I say? He said, I am that I am. In other words, it is the, I'm the, I'm the God of your fathers. I'm a relational God. I'm the God who desires to have intimacy with you. I'm your father in that sense. But he also says, I am all powerful. That's how you'll be delivered. I'll display my power as I set my people free. So now I have a God not only who desires to have a relationship with me, but has the power to do that. How majestic, how splendid, how amazing is your name in all the earth. So I ask this question as we conclude here, really. I ask this question. How is it that we can worship God and honor him? One, I think, is to recognize his greatness, of course, and to celebrate that. Never be ashamed of who our God is. Never, ever. How could you ever be ashamed of who he is? Sometimes you are. Sometimes I am. Because I'm fearful of what other people will think of me. Not anymore. I want them to know how great my God is. But the second way that I can participate with God is exactly the way Adam was. Just doing normal things. Feeding the kids. Going to work. Doing your job. Studying. Taking a walk. Taking a hike. Sitting out there and observing God's creation. Whatever, Paul says it this way, whatever you do in word or deed, do all for the glory of God. The normal Listen very carefully, because I think sometimes we think in, in terms that are um, churchies. The only thing that can be done for God is church, in church. But that's where the least amount that you do for God takes place. All that other time is not just wasted time. And I can't, get, I can't wait till I get to church to honor God. No, every day, every time you participate with God in what you're doing, in the training of your children, you do so with the power of God, with the authority of God, for the glory of God. 
When you go to school, you learn those things because you learn about God's creation, even though it never may be spoken that way. You know God did all of that. And when you sit there and you, and you learn and see and watch a sunrise, that's your God. God says, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. I brought that here just for you today. And when you enjoyed that, that's when we work together. That's when we do our best work, when you agree with me and you see what I'm doing. Every day, whatever you do in word or deed, when you eat that good food in a few minutes... And you give thanks for that. You think, God, you gave me these taste buds. I'm using your taste buds to enjoy this. Yeah, it smells good too, God. You did that for me. And it's going to work good for my body. You did that for me. Oh, God, we're, you know something, God? We're in this together, aren't we? God says, yeah, we are. And he's delighted with that. The worst thing you can do is to believe that you're alone and you're trying to figure all this stuff out on your own. You're in a partnership and the senior partner is God. He's not lacking in resources. He's not lacking in knowledge. He's not lacking in power. He's not lacking in creativity and resolution and solutions. He is not lacking at all. And the fact of the matter is he doesn't even need you, but he delights in choosing to use you. For his glory. So when you're going about normal things this week, I hope you won't see them as normal anymore. I hope you'll see them as God allowing you to work with him in all of his greatness. Mm-hmm. 